good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's good to see all of you here this morning. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Jason, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. Having said that, it's my great privilege to introduce a dear brother in the Lord to come and open the scriptures to us. Ian, if you want to start heading up here, we're privileged to have Ian Hamilton with us. I think most of you are aware of who he is. And we've just claimed him. I don't know if he wants to be claimed by us as one of our pastors. We certainly don't pay him like he's one of our pastors, but he's been a great benefit to us and to our church. And if you know Ian, you can see his fingerprints on our church, actually. And so we're very humbled that he's here to preach. And I'm very excited to hear what we're about to hear. Thank you, brother, and welcome. Well, the privilege is all mine. And I don't say that lightly. Joan and I love coming to Bakersfield. You make us so welcome. You're warm-hearted. And to see warm-heartedness in a Christian congregation is actually a great thing. It means that the grace of the gospel is taking root in people's lives. The gospel comes not merely to renew our minds... It comes to transform our lives. And one of the marks of a transformed life is warm-heartedness towards strangers. So we're here and we're delighted and thankful to be here. Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one with you, to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. This will be a somewhat lengthy reading. We'll read from the first verse of chapter 33 down to the eighth verse of chapter 34. And as I read, I would like you to be asking yourself this question. If I could ask God one thing this morning, what would that one thing be? If you had carte blanche, if the Lord said, ask me anything, and I will do it for you, what is it that you would ask of him? You'll know the context of these chapters. God has delivered his people gloriously from their exile and bondage in Egypt He has brought them out that he might bring them into a land of promise. He has committed himself to be their God and for them to be his people. But no sooner has he rescued them from their exile and bondage that they begin to play false with God. Their hearts become distant from him. And amazingly, astonishingly, they persuade Aaron to make a golden calf, an image to represent God, as if God could be represented by any image, either of the mind or made by the hands. And God is about, so the Bible tells us, about to wipe this people from the face of the earth. But Moses pleads with God, and God relents. And so we come to the 33rd chapter. And the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. 
and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent, that is, that divinely ordained structure, that temporary structure where God promised to meet with his people, that tent of meeting that would reach its ultimate omega point in the person of Jesus Christ who came and tented, literally tabernacled among us. Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, Behold, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation, that is this stiff-necked, rebellious, disobedient nation, is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found grace in my sight. And I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, that is Yahweh, the ever being one, the covenant making, covenant keeping Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. 
Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. If you had the privilege to ask God this morning anything, what would you ask? I wonder if you know this morning that the most significant thing about you, whoever you are, whatever your history, background, heritage, race, color, culture, the most significant thing about you is what you think of God. Ponder that for a moment. The most significant thing about you is what you think of God. At a critical moment in the history of redemption and in his own life, Moses pleaded with God, please show me your glory. And the Lord responded, you'll notice from our reading, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. The context, the immediate context is stunning. If you know the previous chapters, the Lord had said that he would destroy this people because of their unremittingly blatant wickedness and disobedience. He would make a new start with Moses. But in chapter 32, we find Moses pleading with God. He intercedes before God, and God hears his prayer. He hears his prayer. God has said, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. I'll make a new start with you, Moses. And Moses pleads with God, Lord, they are your people called by your name. What will the nations say? If you wipe them off the face of the earth. He doesn't deny that they are a stiff-necked, rebellious-hearted people. He acknowledges it. This is what they are, Lord, but they are your people. You have put your name upon them. You have said, I will be your God and you will be my people. Moses prays. And the Lord relents. Prayer changes things. 
One of the striking features of Moses' petition, please show me your glory, is that the Lord responds to Moses, most probably not as Moses expected him to respond. The Lord says to Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. John Calvin actually thinks we should translate the word goodness, beauty. I will cause all my beauty to pass before you. Moses has pleaded that God would grant him some ineffable sense of the unspeakable glory of the divine majesty. He wants to be overwhelmed by the wonder of who God is. And the Lord says, you're asking too much. I will cause all my beautiful goodness to pass before you. What God is actually saying to Moses is that his glory is not merely the dazzling brightness of his divine majesty. God's glory is the outshining of his majestic goodness. God's glory is not simply for us to admire and behold and speak about and preach about and write about. God's glory is to be experienced in the reception of his beautiful goodness as he encounters us in our lives. One of the great truths that God impresses on his people again and again and again throughout the length and breadth of Holy Scripture is that because he is good, he does good. Psalm 119, verse 68, if you know the verse, the Lord does good because he is good. If God were not to do good in all that he did, he would ungod himself. He cannot be other than what he is. Goodness belongs to the essence of who God is. One of my favorite texts in the Bible, perhaps, is one that we so easily pass over. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Peter has gone to the house of Cornelius to evangelize Cornelius, to share the gospel of God with Cornelius. Where would you begin to share the gospel of the grace of God with someone who has asked you to come to them and to share with them the glorious good news of God? Where would you begin? Peter begins, you'll remember, by saying, you've heard of Jesus of Nazareth, how he went about doing good. That's where Peter begins his gospel presentation. He impresses on this man Cornelius that this Jesus who has come from the glory, who has taken our flesh to himself, he went about doing good. In Jesus, the goodness of God became incarnate. Moses prays, Lord, show me your glory. And so the Lord says to Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. And he places Moses in the cleft of the rock Moses will be allowed, as it were, to see the back parts of God. Now, the language is anthropomorphic. It's human language to convey the unconveyable. It's as if God is saying to Moses, Moses, what you have asked is good, but you've asked too much. No man can see my face and live but I want you to know something of my glory goodness. 
And so in this theophany, in this God appearing, you know how the Bible is punctuated, not often, but punctuated at certain points with divine appearings. God draws near in ways that human beings can in some measure begin to appreciate. And here in this visible theophany, this God appearing, Moses is placed in the cleft of the rock and the Lord causes all his goodness to pass before him. And what is happening here is that the Lord is further unpacking his I amness. Remember back in chapter 3, when the Lord calls Moses, who for 40 years has been in Midian tending sheep, and Moses encounters this phenomenon, this burning bush, nek tamen consumi batur, and it was not consumed. And Moses looks bewildered at that which is not being consumed by fire. And he draws near and the Lord says, Moses, take off your shoes because you are on holy ground. And you remember how Moses says, what shall I say to the people to whom you are sending me? When they ask me, well, who are you, Moses? Who sent you to deliver us? What am I to say? What is your name? And the Lord says, Yahweh Vayahi, I am, that is my name, I am. Now, if someone you meet later today and you say to them, oh, it's nice to meet you, what's your name? I am. You would look at them and think, who you? Who you? And that's all the Lord says. This is enough. You tell them. I am the self-existent one, the one who burns but who is not consumed. But you see, the history of redemption is an escalating, unfolding, and revealing of the I amness of God. And so here, what is happening is that the Lord is unpacking in language and in theology, the essence of that which he essentially is. Now, although you'll notice here the vision was exhibited to Moses' eyes, the main point lies in the voice, not in what Moses can see with his eyes, but in what Moses can comprehend with his mind through his ears. And this is a very vital point, I think, in the life of evangelical Christianity today. I think we're almost regressing into medievalism. We want religion to appeal to the senses we want to see things and feel things. We need to go back to the opening words of the letter to the Hebrews, which you spent 75 years going through here <laughs> in a Sovereign Grace Church. In times past, God spoke to us in different ways and various manners through prophets, prophecies, theophanies, but in these last days. He has spoken to us by his Son. The burden of the revelation does not lie in the theophany itself, but in the words that the Theophanic, the God-appearing God, declares to Moses. We're going to look at this step by step, but what I want really all of us to understand is this. What God reveals of himself to us in Holy Scripture, he reveals not for our admiration only, 
but for our emulation. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are brought into not only a kingdom where the Lord is God, you're brought into a family where God is Father and where Jesus Christ is the elder brother. You're brought into a family and into that family a new likeness is being at times painfully etched into your life. What the Holy Spirit first etched into the holy humanity of Christ, he comes to lay as a template idiosyncratically on the lives of all God's redeemed children. God's purpose is to make us more and more and more into the family likeness. And so when we read here about the Lord, as it were, self-expressing his likeness, we need to understand that we are not simply to read that and to think, well, this is great. Look what God tells us about himself. We need to read that and then take to heart what we read, for example, at the end of the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. What God reveals here to Moses, he reveals, yes, for our admiration, our worship, but also for our emulation. This is what we are to be like. This is the family likeness that is to display itself in the lives of those who have come into saving union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just notice a number of things here with you. The Lord places him in the cleft of the rock. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, this is God preaching. This is God preaching. The Lord, the Lord. We could almost stop there, couldn't we? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in chesed, covenant love, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So what does God want Moses to know about him? What is the essence of the glory goodness that is God? Well, says God, first of all this, I am merciful and gracious. That's where God begins his self-disclosure to Moses. You want to know my glory, Moses? Let me tell you what my glory, goodness consists of. It consists of mercy and grace. It's as if the Lord is saying to Moses, get this, Moses. Yahweh Vayahi, the God who is, is kind to sinners. I never get over how God begins the self-disclosure. He doesn't say, the Lord, the Lord, the self-existent, ever-living, everlasting one, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who is from everlasting and who is to everlasting, who is simple in his being, who is not a composition of surpassions. He could have said all of that for all of it's gloriously true. But what Moses and what the people of God need to understand is that God is rich in mercy. And that's why there's hope for every human being on the face of this planet this morning and hope for every one of us here this morning. God is not good to the good, but to the bad and to the ungodly. 
John 3.16 has a very special place in my life. And I often wonder if Christians really get John 3.16. You know the words well, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And so often we think, well, isn't that magnificent? God loves the world. How extensive is God's love? Well, that's there, but it's a minor there. The major note of John 3.16 is that God so loved the world, this world, this fallen, wicked, vile, evil, God-despising, God-denying, Christ-crucifying world. Are you serious? Are you serious? It's not the extensiveness of the love, though that's there. But the graciousness of the love, the inexplicableness of the love. Why, O oh Lord, such love to me? There's hope for us all because the glory goodness of God is good not to the deserving because there are none. But to the ill-deserving and even to enemies. And so the Lord Jesus could say to his disciples and to the crowds who were listening on in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Love your enemies because that's what the Father does. When we look out at the vileness of the world in which we live, and my country is simply a mirror image of yours, and we get upset, and we get angry, and please God, with righteous anger, we can't ever live placidly and um, demurely before the vileness that covers the faces of our nations. But what we need to remember is that we were once God's enemies. And God had mercy upon us. And we should see this vile, wicked world in all its vileness as a world that God reaches out to in mercy and in grace. You want to know my glory, Moses. It's the glory of mercy and of grace. And then secondly, he tells Moses that his glory goodness is slow to anger. I love those words. Because if God was not slow to anger with me, I would be without hope and without God. He's slow to anger. He holds out his hands all the day long. It's an amazing thing. The language that God uses to depict himself, the sovereign king of the cosmos who spoke into being out of nothing all things, and yet who holds out his hands. Or to use the language Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5, in God's stead, on God's behalf, we plead with you. It's a remarkable thing that Almighty God pleads personally through his ordained servants with sinners to come to him. He is slow to anger. One of the Puritans put it very Simply and very beautifully, he says, judgment is God's strange work. Grace and mercy is his proper work. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the Lord says through Ezekiel. I take no pleasure, but rather that they would turn to me and live. And then these amazing words, why will you die, O Israel? Turn to me. Turn to me and live. You can almost taste the pathos 
in the language of the Almighty. You heard it in Hosea 11 in the two passages that Jason read so helpfully to us. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? My heart recoils. My glory goodness is seen in my slowness to anger. And then thirdly, he says, his glory goodness abounds in covenant love and faithfulness. You know what God's covenant is? God's personal commitment of himself to be our God and God's gracious bringing of us in Christ to be his people. He establishes his covenant unilaterally and then sends us forth to live out the blessedness of that covenant relationship. And what he wants us to know and what the Lord wants Moses to know that not only is he slow to anger, but that he abounds in hesed, covenant love, and faithfulness. In other words, Moses, get this. My love to my own is not fickle. It's not changeable. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. My love is unchangeably faithful. I remember yet hearing Edward Donnelly. If you've never listened to Edward Donnelly's sermons, he died a few months ago. Wonderful, wonderful man from Northern Ireland. I remember yet sitting at a Banner of Truth pastor's conference, and he was quoting some words of Gerhardus Voss. Guess which country he came from, Charlene? Gerhardus Voss. Johannes Gerhardus Voss. And Voss was commenting on the opening words, if I remember rightly, of Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And Voss wrote this. The reason God will never stop loving his people is because he never began. I have loved you with an everlasting love. What does everlasting mean? It has no beginning and it has no end. The reason he will never stop loving you in Christ is because he never began. He has always loved his people in Christ. And so like our Father, we are to be men and women who are not fickle, unreliable, undependable. We should be known as Christian believers whose word is our bond. We say what we mean and we mean what we say. God's goodness abounds in covenant love and faithfulness. And then he says, as if to underscore all that he has said thus far, because we need to hear it again and again and again, he says, my glory goodness forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Three different words in the Hebrew, but together they're comprehensive, as if to say, no matter what your sin is, no matter what your transgression is, no matter what your iniquity may be, I forgive. I hardly know any of you very well at all. Maybe you're here today and there are particular sins or just the weight of sin in general just bears you down. And you think, can God possibly forgive me? Well, from his own mouth, he says, yes, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, however vile, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. The gospel is out of this world.
Isn't that the language of the Apostle John in his first epistle? Chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love is this? That's actually not quite what the Greek text says. Although you can translate it as dully as that. He's really saying, from what country is this love? There are no paradigms in this world to help me to get my head around this love that has come from the Father. From what country, from what planet, from what other world has this love come? You know these words, I'm sure, in the book of Micah. Who is a God like you? How would you continue? Who is a God like you? Infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and truth. Shorter catechism. Well, he could say that. But he doesn't. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. Passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. What the Bible calls the sea of God's forgetfulness. You come to the Lord and say, oh Lord, oh Lord, that sin, what sin is that? Oh, you know that sin, don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you'll remember, Lord, you must remember, I've buried that in the sea of my forgetfulness. It's gone. I've washed it, pardoned it, buried it. It's gone. My son has paid in full the price. And then we need to apply that to ourselves. Be kind to one another, Paul says. Be tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you're harboring resentments, you're betraying the family likeness. You need to go. Maybe even now, you might think, oh, I'd be humiliated. Well, perhaps, but maybe you would be a catalyst for great blessing. But at some point, go and forgive, forgive, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You cannot hold back forgiveness because God never holds back forgiveness to those who come seeking his forgiveness. If someone seeks your forgiveness, you must receive them. And forgive them. And you say, but, but they've done it 25 times. The Lord says 70 times 7. And that doesn't mean at 491 you say, time up, pal. No more. You've had your lot. We're to be as forgiving, as merciful as our Heavenly Father. But then the fifth thing. God's goodness will by no means clear the guilty. God's goodness is a holy and a righteous goodness. You see, goodness that did not deal justly with sin and wickedness would not be goodness. It would be badness. To make no distinction between the just and the unjust, between the godly and the ungodly, between the good and the bad, would render God no God at all. Stephen Charnock, who wrote three massive volumes on the attributes of God, wrote, God's goodness shines in his justice, for without being just, he could not be good. In other words, don't trifle with God. Don't think, well, it's God's duty to forgive. That's what God's about. He'll always be at hand.
to forgive, he will by no means clear the guilty even unto the third and fourth generation of the children. And that simply means, and Calvin brings this out so well, that when children follow the example of their parents and continue the rebellion of their parents against the Lord and his gospel and his cause and his son and his kingdom, they will experience his judgment. That's why, brothers, you fathers especially, not discounting mothers, you know I don't mean that, but fathers above all, be the kind of men who by example first and by prayer and teaching and encouragement and gentleness raise up your children in the nurture and admonition of Christ that you may not be a stumbling block to them and find on the day of judgment your children saying, I learned to be what I am from the example of my dad. Rather, please God, they will say on the day of judgment, they will rise up and call you blessed. Because with all your weaknesses and frailties, you modeled for them the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Just notice briefly as we close two things. First of all, Moses bowed down and worshipped. The proper end of God's revelation is not disputation, but worship. Doxology is the omega point of theology. If our theology doesn't lead us to bow down and worship, it isn't Christian. Theology is not there first to be disputed about. Theology is there for us to put our hands to our mouth and bow down and worship. But what does all that say to us this morning? First, along with all biblical theophanies, God appearings. This one foreshadows the appearance of God in Christ. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is the permanent and climactic theophany, God appearing. Moses meets with God in the tent of meeting. And the New Testament takes up that language, especially the Apostle John in the first chapter of the Gospel. And the word became flesh and tented, tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. No one has ever seen God, verse 18, but the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. In the Lord Jesus Christ, God has come and declared himself unpacked himself is actually the language John uses, exegesitor. He exegeted God. Philip says in John 14, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we can behold God and not die because we behold God in a mediator and a savior and the other thing I close with this the evidence that we have seen in Jesus the glory of God is that our lives will reflect that glory that we will actually be able to say you remind me of someone Oh, who's that? My Savior, Jesus Christ. You know these words, the end of 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled face, not like Moses, whose face was veiled, 
But we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are changed from one degree of glory into another. The evidence that we have in any measure seen the glory of God and experienced that glory, goodness, and mercy, forgiveness, and unfailing love is that we are being changed, sometimes so slowly we can hardly believe it's happening, sometimes so painfully we wonder what God is doing with us. But change from one degree of glory to another until all the degrees are over and we are transformed into his likeness. So, brothers and sisters, have you seen the glory of God in Jesus Christ? Let us pray. Our gracious God and our heavenly Father, we ask you now to show us your glory. Open our eyes, Lord, the eyes of our understanding to see afresh in your Son the glory of God, to see in his cross the effulgence of your glory. Lord, meet with us, we pray, in our need. Draw near to us, Lord, we are poor and needy. Meet with us, be glorified in all that we are and in all that we do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.